Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle owners, wannabe owners, and the Doodle Curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of Labradoodles, Golden Doodles, and dogs in general. Today I'm bringing you my interview with Denise Costanton, the founder and executive director of Brigadoon Service Dogs on the west side of Washington State. Denise has a certificate in canine studies from Bergen University of Canine Studies. She has a professional certification with the National Canine School of Dog Trainers and is a certified clicker trainer through the Karen Pryor Academy. She has over 40 years of dog breeding and training experience. In this episode, we learn all about Brigadoon service dogs, the type of dogs that they produce, the different breeds they work with. Um, we learn about the difference between service dogs and therapy dogs, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Denise, welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. I found out about Brigadoon because one of our website community members shared some post about, I think it was a poodle that was being offered as as a pet from Brigadoon, Um, and she shared that with me, and so I started to look into Brigadoon because I didn't know you existed, and I thought, well, it'd be so fun to have somebody from a service dog organization join me on the Doodle Kisses podcast so we can do some education, and I think it's just an interesting topic. Okay, well, good. Yeah, it was probably Scarlett you saw. She was uh, released from the program, and when we release our dogs, uh, as service dogs, then we adopt them out to forever homes. Awesome. So Denise, I want to know about your dog story. Tell me about, you know, your first dog growing up and how you got involved in this world in the first place. As far back as I can remember, there's always been dogs in the house, but my first dog was a border collie when I was, I think, third grade. Aww. And I've always had dogs and trained dogs and it was, they were my best friends because I was an awkward kid. Uh awkward in social skills and what have you and from a dysfunctional family so my colleague was my uh, my saving from getting into trouble and everything else because I could always go to her and she never judged me in any way or got mad at me or yelled at me and no matter how what mood I was in or frightened I was she was always there for me Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I went into and then adulthood I started breeding collies when I was 17 um and then life you know happens and they get away from it for a while but I came back full circle where I I opened my first uh pet dog training business and I came out of the corporate world and decided that dogs were my life and you know I, I did property management and real estate and selling life insurance and mutual funds and all that and I just kind of came first my comfort zone which was dogs uh-huh oh I love that yeah, I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how to help people exactly. So, because I'm not a real, I'm not a touchy-feely, sit there and ask you how your day was kind of a person. But I still have that need, to, that humanitarian inside of me. So I went through dog training. I went through a couple of dog training schools to get the professional titles. And then I trained pet dogs for a while because I needed to train different breeds of dogs and get that experience behind me. Mm-hmm. So I did that for 10, 10, 11 years. Then I went to school down in California under Bonnie Bergen to uh, learn about service dogs. You know, I saw that I was looking at your bio on the website that you went to the Bergen university for canine studies. And the reason uh-huh. I know about them is because I have a, a colleague who got her dog and she's in Washington too, her facility dog. Mm-hmm. From them, and so I've been trying to get them on the podcast. So that's so they seem like a really interesting organization too. Well, Bonnie was Bonnie Bergen was the one who started originally Canine Companions for Independence, known as CCI, uh-huh. and they're one of the largest assistance dogs or service dog school that I know of around. And she started that in the seventies, and then 
branched out. I think it was 91 that she decided that it's better to help people start their own school so that more dogs can be trained rather than having a big box store trying to provide dogs for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it just took off from there. And when I went to see her, she didn't have the university that she has right now. She just had a much smaller school. And that's what I went to. And at that time, it was called Assistance Dog Institute. Okay. And so I went down and stayed down there for uh, six weeks. And I didn't learn as much about dog training as much as I did dealing with nonprofit, which I knew nothing about at the time, and uh, working with people with different types of disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so I came back and closed my pet dog training for-profit business and opened up Brigadoon Service Dogs nonprofit. And that was in 2004. Awesome. And so when you started, you know, how many dogs did you have and what, what's the place you started? Well, I, I lived on five acres in Bellingham mm-hmm. and I already had a training studio, so to speak, where I was doing my pet dog training. And um, I, my intent at the time, I had a young collie, which was son of Brigadoon, who I named the company after. And I was, he was my first service dog in training. So I got him and then I was, I used, a, got a golden retriever donated to me. So I started out pretty small. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my first, I gradually got a couple of more dogs, a lab and a lab mix. So my first five, I think, is what I had until 2006 when they were old enough to graduate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I intended it originally, and <laughs> I was very naive about this. It's almost embarrassing knowing what I know now, <laughs> looking back. It's amazing what I've accomplished, to tell you the truth. I had a website built, and as soon as that website went live, I was inundated by all these phone calls from people with children in particular autism Mm -hmm. who were having a really hard time getting anybody to help them with their child and their dog because a lot of schools won't work with children under 16. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I don't understand that. You know, if you're training service dogs, shouldn't that be for anybody that needs a dog to help become more independent? Anyway, it kind of ventured out from there that I started helping with a lot of folks that weren't helped by other schools. And I ended up doing a whole lot. I, I knew how to talk, I knew the understanding of how to train dogs, the psychological portion of it. And I'm thinking of, I planned it all out. And I go, well, if I can physically, if the dog is physically capable of doing it, then I can communicate in such a way to the dog, get it to repeat these behaviors. And so I kind of trained dogs for people with multiple disabilities and uh, matching them with the right dog. And it just sort of blossomed. And I was only originally going to use collies and golden retrievers because I worked with golden retrievers at Bonnie's school. I was very familiar with the collie and their working breed. Mm-hmm. And the name Brigadoon came because I had seen the movie Brigadoon. My first show dog was named Brigadoon. They bring a little magic. The story goes that the village only comes to life once every 100 years. So I thought, we bring a little bit of magic to our clients with our dogs. So that's how the name got born. And, uh, I started out my first year with a graduation was three dogs and then it went to five dogs and it bounced back from five every year from five to maybe eight dogs. So we got up to 14 dogs in a year mm-hmm. and we pretty much stayed at that somewhere between 10 and 14 dogs a year that we graduate because we're a pretty small facility. Yeah. Where do the dogs live? Do they live in the facility or do they go home with specific trainers? I have, uh, we have some puppy raisers. As far as today is concerned, I have four prison programs. And so we have uh, 14 dogs that live, I think it's 14 dogs that live in the four prisons with the inmate. And then I have puppy raisers. So the dogs will live with puppy raisers until they're about eight months old. They come back and get evaluated. And then if they are evaluated, they can live in the prison system. Then we take them into the prison, which I have trained each of the inmates individually. I stay one week at the prison, well, not at the prison, but at a <laughs> hotel, go to the prison every day and train them for a whole week um, before I leave dogs with them. Uh-huh. And then I travel once a month and visit with them uh, to make sure everything is going well and stay in contact via their counselor. And so in the prisons, I'm intrigued by this because I, right before we hit record, I was talking to Denise and, and our local prison here has a similar program or has her program, right? Right. The, the Coyote Ridge in Connell. Yes. 
Yeah. Oh, we no, have two and dogs Walla. there. Yeah. So it's coming to Walla Walla possibly in the future. Yeah. They want us there, but okay. I just haven't found the funding yet to be Got able it. to afford to go over there. So in prison, these uh, inmates are doing some kind of training. What kind of training are they trained to do? So is it just basic puppy raising or is there more? No, no, no. These guys actually train. There's like 80 cues that we put together. Um, when I go spend the first week with them, I usually bring my own dogs that mm-hmm. are already trained. Not They're not service dogs, but they know how to do a lot of the things. And then I show them and have them hands-on work with the dogs. So I walk them through ha- the basic handling. We start out always with basic handling, how to get the leash on the dog, how to take the dog out of the crate, how to walk through doorways, uh, how to keep the dogs focused on you. Just basic stuff you have to have under your belt before you can start training the dog because you can't, you have to have the dog's attention and focus before you can get behavior and ask the dog to do things for you. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, a ladder if you will, or stepping stones that the dog, because the people have to learn the ground foundation first, and then they learn and learn and learn. And these guys are so thankful to have the dogs in the program because it is a privileged program that uh, they take it very seriously. And I leave them with five different videos to watch, DVDs, and books to read. Mm-hmm. They're required to document their daily uh, time with the dog when they take it out to the bathroom, playtime, work time. So they have this all documented and the one in Coyote Ridge and Connell weekly send me an update through their counselor. She emails it to me. So I know where the dog is at in their training. So they train all the basic cues, sit down, stay, come, heal. We have side, they learn light switch. They learn blank. They use post. They do mirror. They do, um, retrieve work, uh, wheelchair work, whatever that dog may, because we don't always know where the dog is going to go, whom the dog is going to go to. Mm -hmm. So we teach all the dogs, all the cues in in our repertoire. However, some of them are, some dogs are better at retrieve, for example, than other dogs. And there might be a dog that's large enough to be a balanced dog or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we just keep track of what the dog's good at. Uh, We never make a dog be a service dog that doesn't want to be a service dog. Mm -hmm. Doesn't want to work, you know. So the guys can train them almost all the way up to being able to pass their public access test. Oh, neat. Is there a certain age that they go to the prisons versus um, other raisers, puppy raisers? Usually they go to the prison after they have been with a puppy raiser at about eight to nine months of age. Oh, okay. So they've been out in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the puppy raiser's job is to take them out in the world and expose them to life mm-hmm. because when they're in prison, they're isolated. Obviously, (laughs) Um, although a couple of our counselors will actually take a dog home for the weekend so that they're out in a family situation for that weekend and they can take them to the store or do things like that. And it gives them the dogs an opportunity to get out and about again. Mm -hmm. So they get all the socialization first. Yes. And what else do the puppy trainers do with the puppy besides socialization? Do they do any kind of training themselves? Yeah, they're. They come to Brigadoon uh, once a week and we have training sessions there. And uh, we talk about issues if they're having any kind of problems, getting the dog to do a behavior or whatever. And uh, so we're like a lifeline for them anytime they ha- they're having. So they teach them the basics. That's the only mm-hmm. thing I ask of the puppy raisers. Mm-hmm. Walking on loose leash, we teach it down, how to go in and out of doorways. Good manners, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, then those who want to train more, they're allowed to. I'm pretty flexible about that, but I have pretty strict rules on how the dogs are handled as puppies. And like, we don't allow the dogs to leave the handler to go say hello to people uh-huh. because if they do that when they're little, they're going to be expecting to do that when they're grown. And then you can have issues with the dogs pulling to go say hi to other dogs or other people from their handler. And that creates definite danger issues if the person is doesn't have a, like a balance issue. They're not very strong. They can mm-hmm. get pulled over and hurt. Yeah. So I, my training is viewed from the dog's viewpoint. And I don't think it's fair to allow a puppy to grow up doing certain behaviors that you're going to knock them down for after they're a year old. Mm-hmm. And we don't use correction-based training. And because we don't use correct, correction-based training, we shape the dog's behavior of what to expect as an adult. So the dog needs to, uh, stay focused on their handler at all times in public. 
that's our goal. Dogs are going to be dogs, of course, and they're going to be interested in their environment and want to stop and sniff and all that. But the dog, the handlers are always trained to redirect the dog's behavior to keep them focused on the handler while they're out. That's so neat. It sounds like puppy raising in this way would benefit most dog owners because it would (laughs) because I think so often people think of socialization as the dog playing with other dogs, which is not a bad thing versus just being in the world and experiencing all these things without going crazy, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I want, to, I want to come to your facility and learn <laughs> how to do this. You are more than welcome to. <laughs> you are more than welcome to. So what types of dogs are you using now? What's the, what are the different breeds? that? Primarily, I think um, I've, I've stopped breeding collies uh, mm-hmm. for personal reasons. And then um, we have mostly labs because we belong to, because we're part of the Assistance Dog International, ADI, which is a governing body of other schools across the nation that hold us accountable to the way we train our dogs, the way we run our business, the way we handle our clients, volunteers, staff, everything. Um, When you get accredited through ADI, then you're one of the benefits is you can join this other organization called America's Breeders Co-op. And it's made up from, I think this is our fifth year that the guide dog gave the database of like 25 years of history of breeding guide dogs, labs, and golden retrievers to um, ABC. And then it was a way of starting a new breeding program for people who are, who are small like Brigadoon, who just don't have the space and the function to have five or six breeding dogs and a bunch of stud dogs and puppies coming out of their ears all the time. We just don't have the money or the space. So um, the way this is, you could, there's, uh, we belong to a, what we call the host program. So because I have experience breeding dogs. So my first ABC dog was a female that had already been bred in another school in, I think it was in Indiana. She, when she was verified, she was pregnant. Then she was flown to Brigadoon. And then we kept her and we whelped the puppies. Uh, so once she had her puppies, we kept them until they were weaned. Mm-hmm. And then when they were eight weeks old, mom and one of the puppies flew back to Indiana to her original school where she came from. We were able to keep three of the five puppies. And then the other puppy uh, went to the stud owner, which was down in California, the guide dogs. Mm-hmm. So for our cost and our time whelping out these puppies and raising them, we were able to keep three of the puppies for our program. Mm-hmm. And then they grew up and then um, if they're evaluated to be good breeding dogs, we have the choice uh, if they're correct to go into, and they're very strict and go into the breeding colony. But if they're not, then we are able to stay and neuter them and keep them as our dogs, as service dogs, which is what we want to do. But it enables us to get dogs that have been bred for uh, decades for health and temperament. Because they have to, before they can be bred, all their health checks have to go through a detailed temperament and screening goes through. And then if they're deemed, um, if they pass all the tests, then they can be put into the breeding program. Mm. But if the dog is too shy or if the dog shows any kind of negative points in the personality system, then they are pulled from the breeding program and we stay new to them and pass them off as a, as service dogs, but each one of our dogs are in training, even though they may not always make a service dog, just in case they don't make the program, then we don't have to go back and retrain a dog at 18 months of age. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the breeding dogs have to meet health and temperament qualities and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, As far as, you know, if you have a litter, how do you choose which dogs, what, you know, what stands out to you about the puppies that suggest, Hey, this would be a good service puppy or for training. Well, remember if, if they're from an ABC program, um, the geneticist will send me an email and she says, okay, uh, you can keep a boy or, and one girl or two girls or something. Tell me what sex we can keep. Okay. Then the other dogs have to go to other schools. So when I start evaluate them, we want to look at a dog that's got confidence, loves people more than anything. Um, those are the two big deal. They have to have confidence and really love people and not be too independent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, you know, there's a little test that we do to see if they follow people around. Do they like to be handled a lot? Do they like to climb in your lap? Do they like food? That sort of thing. And mm-hmm. because these dogs from the co-op have been bred over many generations, most of them fit the criteria. There are mm-hmm. very few of them that don't. When we have our own dogs that we breed, um, the, the evaluation is the same. I'm looking for very people-oriented dogs, but confident, especially against sounds and sudden noises. Um, because you have to think when these guys grow up, they're going to go out into the world and we don't know where they're going to go. And it might be in a busy street of, of San Francisco or Seattle. And they have to listen to lots of cars and bikes and noises of all kinds, elevators, people, crowds, other dogs. And we're requiring these dogs to be focused with their handler and not be a dog while they're working, meaning they can't stop and smell Whatever they want to smell, they can't go say hi to people. They're literally working and being focused on the handler. And these are very unnatural things for a dog. Mm -hmm. If you think about natural things the dog does, it's important that they smell everything and they're looking at everything because that's what keeps them safe. Um, So while the dog is working, we're requiring them to do, do that. And if the dog has fear, if they're not confident enough, they can't work out in a situation like that. They cannot do what their handler needs them to do if they're worried about everything coming out of the woodwork to get them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. They have to have a certain focus and relax and trust their person that nobody's no harm's going to come to them. And because we require this of them when they are home, we require the handlers to make sure they get playtime and downtime so they can be a dog. They can go sniff on a walk and things like that on cue so that we're not taking those natural instincts away from there. We're just telling them when they can do it during duty and then off duty when they're off leash, they can just be a dog. Mm-hmm. And that's important for people to understand. Right. Right. And besides the ABC program or the, the cervix dogs that come from that program. Um, do you get dogs from other sources? Do breeders donate dogs or, you know, that are not part of that? Yes. We get um, a lot of people that want to donate dogs. I used to try to rescue dogs from the shelter, but 90% of them failed. And that's a lot of time and money when you have to release a dog after 18 months. Mm-hmm. Because that means so many dogs that you released didn't get, uh, people didn't get the dog. So I quit rescuing dogs from the shelter and then we get a lot of people who want to donate dogs and I'll go evaluate them. And if I, they deem acceptable, then I will bring them into the program. We have purchased dogs in the past. Uh, if we've, this is our, I went two years without any uh, puppies mm-hmm. and where I had to purchase five dogs last year. They were labs. And I did one Aussie mm-hmm. doodles donated to us and we've had poodles donated to us in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't use any of the breeds of dogs that people would uh, think of as being dangerous of any kind. Mm-hmm. So we use the public perception is important that we use friendly looking dogs or in the not aggressive dogs. Um, so yeah, we do take dogs that are donated to us if they're the right temperament. Have you n- noticed any difference between labs, golden, standard poodles, doodles, um, or any of the breeds that you use at being better for certain services or better at certain tasks? I think it depends on the individual dog. The dogs that I that seem to do the best are the lab golden retriever crossed from the ABC co membership that we get the dogs from. Mm-hmm. They have the friendliness of the golden retriever, but the work ethic of the lab. It just seems to be a really good combination, personally. Mm-hmm. I've had some good poodles uh, because there are some families that can't have a regular dog. They have to have a hypoallergenic dog. Mm-hmm. So that's where the poodles come in handy. The doodles are a little bit more work. i found that they <laughs> are friendly, but don't have the work ethic. Uh-huh. A lot of them don't. But we've had a few of them that worked out. And then... The collies, um, those are, they have to go into a particular home. People either love collies or they hate collies because of the barking. Mm-hmm. But I've had some real successes. I think I've graduated 14 collies with other breeds. We don't usually do, I've done a couple of German Shepherds, but I don't 
take them on because of uh, they don't do well with multiple handlers and they mm. don't do well in a kennel environment. They do tend to bond to one person really strongly. Yes, they do. Right. And so therefore I don't usually, I've only taken them twice. And that was a very special situation. One was a local person who physically couldn't train her own dog. So she would come up monthly and visit with the dog. Mm-hmm. And we kept her for the first year to get her through the basics. And then she was able to handle her after that. And the other one was uh, a gentleman in a wheelchair, a veteran who bought the dog from a friend of mine who the dogs are bred as service dogs. And so they have a history of it. So his personality was more laid back, more like a lab. He was like a Labrador in a German shepherd suit. Oh, cute. And that worked out fine. Yeah, he, he worked out great in the situation, but that's a rarity. Most shepherds just can't handle being passed off to one person to another person. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We've had little dogs too, because sometimes, you know, we, because we do diabetic dogs and hearing dogs, they don't have to be a large breed to do that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Same with autism, you know, people with children don't need a large dog. So every once in a while, we'll get a small dog donated to us. I've been having a lot of fun doing these podcasts, interviewing interesting people, learning along with you. I don't really want to stop. However, producing a podcast takes time and money. I'm willing to put in the time, but I don't have podcast production skills. And so we have to pay for a professional to put these podcasts together. This is where you come in. If you're getting anything out of listening to these podcasts, please consider supporting the Doodle Kisses podcast. If every single person who listened to at least one episode gave $1, we could cover the production of several episodes. If you gave $5, well, we'd be done fundraising for the year. Go check out our GoFundMe page. The link is in our show notes. Now back to the learning. What's the most common task that you train for service? Is there one that seems that people seem to need more? Probably the retrieve. Uh I think one of the most important things, basics that we teach, in my opinion, is the down, the go in and the down stay. And of course, loose leash walking is huge. Right. But if you think about service dogs that go to school or go to work with somebody, uh, they have to go under a desk or under a table somewhere and lay there while the person is in school or working. And they have to be able to do that without having to get up and walk around or go greet everybody. They have yeah. to hold that down. How do, um, what do seizure alert dogs typically need to learn? Like they need to notice that the seizure is coming on and then what do they have the person do or what do they do to the person? It depends on, on the individual and there's so many different types of seizures. The first thing that we do is teach the dog to alert the handler. So it gives the dog a tool. I know something's wrong. I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to tell you something's wrong. And so they'll uh, poke them with their nose on their leg, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And that's their alert signal to that person to, to be aware. So it depends if it's a, if it's a grand mal seizure that happens every once in a while, like once a month or so. Uh, some do- I don't know, it, it, some people fall and they shake all over. We can mimic that and mm-hmm. teach the dog to either lay down next to the person to go get help and bring them back to the person. It really, we have to ask that person, what is it you want this dog to do? And then we go from there. Mm-hmm. If it's um, a child that has more of a silent seizure that happens frequently where they just sort of scare off into the sky or whatever, and they, they frequently have them like 15 a day, the dog's going to get desensitized to that. And they're not going to alert to it because it becomes the norm. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. We really have to ask the person what they want the dog to do. Mm -hmm. And again, if somebody comes up with a young child and says, well, you know, she has all these seizures all the time. I said, well, it's going to be become normal to the dog and they're not going to react to it anymore. Oh, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. At all. And you said earlier how you made all these mistakes. And I think that's the only way to really learn is to get in there, right? Because you could try to learn everything in advance and be so perfect that you never start. Well, experience is the best teacher. You know, you can read books, you can go to school, but until you jump in and start swimming, (laughs) you don't know. Oh man, I read all the puppy books and I still felt with my first puppy that I didn't know anything. (laughs) Yeah, it's experience. 
You said something else that piqued my interest because I was going to ask a question in this realm. You said 90% of the shelter dogs that you tried to train failed. And what I'm, what I'm noticing a lot, so I'm in a lot of various doodle groups on Facebook, just kind of reading and keeping my eye out. And some of them that are, that are formed by people who, they form the group to help people find rescue dogs. So they kind of share, oh, here's a dog in this location if anyone's looking or etc. And I'm seeing more and more people post in these kind of groups saying, I have a, you know, random disability, and I'm looking to rescue a dog to train for service. And so I always, you know, my red flags go up thinking, this is never going to work. What is, you know, given your experience, what would you say to those people who think, well, I'm going to save money by getting a rescue dog and using that dog as my service dog? Well, there are First of all, disclaimer, I have nothing against people who train their own service dogs. The problem is most people don't know what they're doing and they don't train the dog to behave in public the way a service dog should. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that we need to consider here with my experience has been with dogs in a kennel environment, lots of different people handling them. Uh, it isn't a one-on-one, one trainer, one dog through the life of this uh, dog's training. When you take a dog and a owner-trainer, you have this relationship based. Uh, if the person knows dogs, dog behavior, how to read dog language, and how to train the task, and they follow the ADA regulation, um, that person who knows dog behavior and what have you should be successful training their own dog. It's the people who don't know anything about dogs, don't know how to read dog language, have no experience, it's their first dog or whatever, they, they, the idea, their heart's in the right place, but they really don't know what they're doing. I would say 90% of those people fail. Mm-hmm. Or they have a dog out there as a service dog that's not behaving correctly, doesn't have the, the correct doggy etiquette. Um, the dog is three or four feet away from them in the stores. They're visiting people. They're sniffing things or eating things off the floor. Mm-hmm. They're not well kept. They're on those retractable leashes. And those oh. are some of the signs that tell me right off the bat that this is not a legitimate service dog. At least it's not trained as a legitimate service dog. Let's put it that right. way. Yeah. And, and those kind of situations really make it hard for true service dogs to... Yeah to have public access, you know, because they give them a bad reputation and, and people are afraid to say no. <laughs> it is. It's a very sticky and fine line because they're in the state of Washington. There really isn't any law governing service dogs. There isn't, it's not like you go get a, a license, like you drive a car, mm-hmm. you have to pass tests and everything. You, there's no such thing in most states and especially in the state of Washington there's ADA laws that say, okay, the federal law says a, the only thing that's a service animal is a dog or a miniature horse, and that's it. All other animals are excluded. However, who's going to police it? And I hope, my hope is that more and more people get educated of what a real service, what I'm going to call an actually trained service dog looks like, whether it's from a school like Brigadoon or an owner trained service dog that when you see it, they all should look similar. Mm -hmm. They all should be like within 12 inches of the body. They should be laying down quietly. Inconspicuous helpmate is what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to be greeting people or uh, anything like that. They're supposed to be as invisible as possible. Right. And I've seen those for sure. Those I'm amazed and in awe when I see a real service dog working. And you know, it's, a, it's not a right to have a service dog, by the way, in public. It is a privilege. And mm-hmm. this is where a lot of people think because they're disabled or so-called disabled, these people that have emotional support dogs do not have public access. Right. Therapy dogs do not have public access. And service dogs, you know, certified service dogs, is uh, the public access is there, but any business owner, restaurant, theater, if your dog is not behaving, they have the right to kick you out, even if it's a certified service dog. And I tell my people who go through our two-week of team training that you're representing all service dogs. And if you don't keep your dog in check when you're out in public, then that person has the right to ask you to leave. 
if it's bothering other patrons, if it's defecating or peeing in the store, if it's barking, if it's growling, if it's lunging, if it's doing anything like that outside of being within 12 inches of that handler, unless it's under the desk or something, um, they have the right to ask you to leave. Yeah. And this is a good time to point out the difference between service dog, emotional support animal, and therapy dog. Um, Therapy dog is a dog that a person trains to go to a facility or go visit people or maybe even work in someone's private practice as just a nice dog that makes people feel good. They do not work for their owner. They don't do services for their owner. They're not there to help guide them. And here's the key point. They're invited to the facility or the building. Mm -hmm. They don't have a, yeah, they can't just walk in. They are actually have an invitation. My standard poodle is a therapy dog in two of the schools here in Bellingham. And the counselor picks them, picks her up in the morning at seven and she stays during the day for kids. She's a counselor there. So when the kids are having meltdowns or something, they come into her office and they get hugs and loves from, from Sophie. And then the counselor brings her home around four in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So that is a therapy dog. Um, yeah. Emotional support dog has kind of come up on the radar fairly recently. It only requires a letter from your psychologist or psychiatry stating that your anxiety is to the point that you can't live in this apartment that may not allow pets, but you have to have the pet to be able to exist in your apartment. Again, it does not have public access. It's not allowed anywhere other than a normal pet dog would be, but it's yeah. covered, covered under HUD. And then the American Airlines Act covers it for traveling. Again, the dog still has to be well-behaved and not be bothering patrons. But it doesn't have to have any training. So it could no, actually be a wild and crazy dog that makes you feel good, right? Could be. And that's the, that's the sad part. I think all dogs should be well-behaved in public, though. Yeah, I do, too. Not everybody likes dogs. Right, right. Sometimes they'll even dog lovers might be offended if there's dogs, you know, sitting at the table in a restaurant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they're not supposed to be at the table in the restaurant. Right, right. <laughs> in fact, the highest compliment I tell my people is when you have your dog tucked underneath the restaurant table and you get up to leave and patrons will say, oh, I didn't even know there was a dog there. Mm-hmm. That's the best and highest compliment you can get. And I require our dogs, it's not part of ADA, but when the dog isn't allowed to get up out of the table and then shake, you know how they will, when they mm-hmm. lay down, um, I require them to walk the dog all the way out of the restaurant before they're allowed to shake. We call it wiggle. Uh-huh. And I, I developed that because I certainly didn't want this big dog walking by my table full of food, <laughs> shaking dander and hair. And I thought, well, that's rude. Yeah. So that's part of our curriculum. I have no idea if other people do that or not, but that's what I instigated in my stuff because I didn't want dog here in my food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that, and you mentioned, you know, Washington has no specific laws other than whatever the ADA's laws are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no, Correct. you can't really get a certificate randomly for your dog that it's a service dog. So there's no way, there's no card you can wave at a store and say, look, this is my service dog. It's official. So we give cards, we give cards out. Mm-hmm. Um, we take a picture of the client with their dog and it has the ADA uh, regulations on the back. However, there are those, and I hate to really say this, but you can go on the internet and buy anything. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make it legal, but then unfortunately there's nobody to police it either. Yeah. It's not like a driver's license that has specific requirements by the state or anything like that. So that's where it's, it's very, very tricky. So I hear now and then about service dog training programs or breeders who supposedly, you know, train service dogs Mm -hmm. and some that might be a little bit shady, right? Like what are some signs if you're, if someone's looking to get help to get a service dog or to have their service dog trained for service or to adopt a dog or whatever, um, it, it sounds like you are accredited with a certain organization that's national or international? International, yes. Ma'am. Is that the only only way to check? Is there Are there any other you know clues or signs that an organization is legit and really does an um, adequate job? There are clues. Yep, absolutely. Um, the thing with ADI is that you have a place to go and they do something about it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if somebody called in and complained about uh, Brigadoon that they gave 
we gave them a dog that bit somebody or that wasn't trained and it was passed off as being trained, ADI would come down on us so hard that we could lose our accreditation like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard of, let's first of all go to a legitimate trainer who does know what they're doing, um, may not be able to certify your dog or give you a certificate that looks official like what Brigadoon does, but they really know their stuff. You can go to ask for references, find out how long they've been in business. Those two things, number one. Uh, where do they get their dogs? If it's a trained dog, then you don't have to worry about that. The ones that you have to be weary about is to ask for thirty dollars to $50,000 for the dog, and they want X amount of money up front, and they've gotten the dog from an animal shelter, uh, trained it for six weeks, and call it good. It takes time. It takes us from the time we raise a puppy till it's two years old for that dog to, to be a legitimate service dog and have all the training and the maturity to be a service dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of any service dogs that legitimate ones that go into the workforce under the age of 18 months because they're just not mature enough to handle everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard stories of people, especially for autistic children, they get these dogs and then they take them home and then the dog is, you know, completely out of control and not training because the layman doesn't know what the dog is supposed to look like out in public. Mm-hmm. They, they have no idea. Well, maybe this is just the way it's supposed to be. And then they go back and, the, and there's no recourse for this person or they close their doors and they flew in the coat because they got their $50,000. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, thank goodness, but every once in a while it does. So definitely ask for references. Talk to other people they've trained dogs for. How long have they been in business? What kind of dogs do they train? What kind of methods do they train? Um, a lot of dogs can be trained pretty fast in the old military style, either with choke chains or a prong collar, or if they graduate, this is my own personal opinion statement here. I think if you have to control a dog with a prong collar uh, or a choke chain, train them like that, the dog isn't being trained in the manner that it's a relationship based, that it wants to please you. Mm-hmm. And there's a big controversy over, well, thank goodness in the last 20 years, it's really leaned toward operant conditioning. But before that, and when I grew up, it was all you knew was, a, was using a training collar on the dog. Um, but what I went through is I, I, see, I saw the difference from growing before I started in the 90s with operant conditioning. Um, it doesn't work on all dogs. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can do a lot of physical and mental harm to that dog by training the old way of training because people, layman's don't know what they're doing. And there's a definite art to training with a training collar. Mm -hmm. So, and I discovered that when I was doing pet training because there was a, a local person that was training with the training collar and they used such harsh, when the dog wouldn't respond, they just upped the corrections to the point where a lot of the dogs snapped and bit or got fearful and wouldn't come out of the crate. Mm-hmm. And it was because the dogs have only one way to defend themselves and that's with their mouth or run away. And, uh, I wanted a training method that would work with anybody, uh, no matter how old you were or anything. And that's why I went into operant conditioning. It was fair to the dog and it was fair to the person. And we start out with the operant conditioning and learning phase. And then we switch over to relationship based, which is where you know, you have that bond and the dog is being rewarded through touch and love and walks and play ball and things like that, rather than relying a hundred percent on food in the beginning, like mm-hmm. we do in the puppy training. So one of the things that I also hear, you know, through the interwebs and wherever is that, you know, someone will say, you know, I have a child with autism, but I can't afford to pay 10,000 or more dollars for a dog, but I know my dog, or it might not be an autism situation, but whatever reason, they need a service animal and they say they can't afford all this. So that's why they're trying to go the rescue route. Right. What are the options for people who might not have the funds to pay for, you know, a service dog straight out, you know, that was from an organization that started that dog out as a puppy? What I've told people in the past is to go to your basic trainer and get the dog to the point where they can pass their canine good citizenship test, mm-hmm. then that's basically good manners. And then find a trainer who can, who's experienced enough, any experienced trainer uh, and behave person who understands dog behavior can pretty much train a dog to do 
retrieve or do whatever they want to. And then you find somebody that's going to focus on tasks. You're still going to have to pay them. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to pay something to that trainer. You may not walk away with an idea or anything like that, but at least you're going to have a dog that presents itself uh, in a better light as a service dog than somebody who doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing is uh, what we tell a lot of folks is it takes about two to three years, depending on there's a waiting list. So if you start fundraising, as soon as your application is approved, I've never had anybody at the end of that period of time who truly put forth effort of fundraising, not have the money at the end of the two-year period. Mm-hmm. And it may cost us uh, $30,000 to produce a dog, but we ask for civilians $10,000 to be raised. Mm-hmm. Children, it's usually pretty easy to raise that kind of money. People want to help you know, a child with uh, whatever issues they have get that dog. and. Um, if the dog is, there's also the Make-A-Wish Foundation for kids if the disability is anywhere near life-threatening and mm-hmm. they will pay for the dog. And I wish we didn't have to charge anything at all, but unfortunately, in order to pay the electric and liability insurance and everything else, we have to have a money coming in. And since we're a nonprofit organization, um, we depend on the community and foundations that have a generous heart to donate money to us and our civilians getting a dog that pay the 10,000. Our veterans and law enforcement and first responders do not pay for their dogs. Okay. So we, we depend on uh, getting sponsorships for their dogs to offset the cost. So there are a lot of options and thinking ahead that it may take two to three years. Someone could definitely fundraise. I mean, people are generous. I see, you know, they are. I see rescues that rescue dogs with major illnesses and people donate. So they will donate to you too. If you put in an effort, I think there's a lot of money out there. And I think if you put in the effort, you will definitely be able to raise funds. If it's something mm-hmm. that is really important and necessary for you. Anything else that I haven't asked you about that you think is important to talk about? Well, one of the things that most people don't stop to think about is, which also raises the, the cost of dogs, is that not all dogs make the program. Mm-hmm. So we can spend 18 months with a dog and then we start seeing behaviors that are, are coming out or the behaviors not being corrected or whatever, and it doesn't make the program. Meaning uh, it mostly it's out of lack of confidence mm-hmm. uh, out in public. Maybe it might be barking at what we call stranger danger, where the dog is not aggressive, but it barks at something that they're unfamiliar with and is out of control. You can't have a dog barking out in public who's being a service dog. So these are a few things. And so when we have when we have to release those dogs from the program, that you know x amount of money that we have put in and time and effort into this dog is lost, and that means one more person doesn't get a dog. Mm-hmm. And then we adopt the dog out to a forever home. And I don't think a lot of people stop to think about that. That not It doesn't mean it's a bad dog. It just means it wasn't suited as service dog. Mm-hmm. And through the years, I'm getting better and better at removing those dogs earlier on than I used to. Because I kept saying, well, you know, it's such a good dog. I really want to give it a chance. Maybe it's just a phase it's going through. And, you know, after 15 years of doing this, I'm starting to get a little bit more uh, cut your losses. Yeah. You can spot it. Yeah. And you stop hoping, you know, Mm -hmm. when you love dogs and you're, you just, sometimes you have to step back and look at it more as a business Mm -hmm. and not waste that dog's time or the, the resources to put into one dog that you could find a home for and then open the door for another dog to come in Mm -hmm. for training. So not all dogs are suited to be service dogs. And I even had one dog that was a beautifully well-trained, nice dog, but didn't really want to work. And maybe he'd down if he felt like it. Maybe <laughs> he'd do what he was. But he, and he, he wasn't obnoxious. He just don't feel like working. So I released him and it was, <laughs> I go, this is ridiculous. Why don't you want to work? <laughs> but he didn't want to. And he told me that in so many ways. And I said, okay, fine. And, you know, he ended up going with a, child that was on the not as a service dog as a pet um on the cusp of being i think uh 
borderline autism. Mm -hmm. And uh, she ended up, they got this relationship going and she ended up doing all agility with this dog and obedience and all kinds of stuff because it was a one-on-one and, you know, she, she was his, she was his gal, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. It was a great match. And he was happy and that's what counts. That's neat. I have a dog that is a nine-year-old Labradoodle, first generation, and she would make a horrible service dog. <laughs> she gets so wound up. But you love up. her to death. Yeah, she gets really wound up and she's not aggressive and she doesn't particularly play with other dogs, but she gets so wound up when she sees them in public. She's like just yeah. vocalizes. And if she were to meet it, she yep. would be fine and then go on her merry way. She wouldn't, she's not like drawn to play hard or be mean or anything like that. But she comes to my office with me and plays the role of therapy dog for my clients that enjoy animals. And she's not perfect yeah. there, but she'll listen. And if the people don't want to be petting her, then she'll, you know, lay down. Yeah, I've noticed that with a lot of our, our uh, Labrador and Golden Duels that they're like, I call them um, the greeters. They want to go say hello to everybody. And uh-huh. once they do, they're fine. Yeah. But, you know, it's not supposed to be done that way with a service dog. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I've thought back, did I let her just meet dogs as a puppy? And I don't think I did. I don't think she was ever allowed to pull me toward, but that's just the way she is. It's just her. Yep. Social butterfly. Yep. Well, Denise, this was so fun to have you on. I really enjoyed this. And I think our listeners will really learn a lot. Um, so okay. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the Doodle Kisses podcast. You're most welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.